Exodus chapter 32. Um, the reading is taken uh, in the church Bibles on page 90. When the people saw that Moses was long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what was they handed him handed him and made it into an idol cast in shape of a calf, fashioned it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented the fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord, said Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out, out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the, on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. 
It's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it into the fire, in the fire. And then he broke it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, why did these people do to you that, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to you. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for his fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. He gave the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. For a moment, and Moses uh, saw that the people were running wild, and that Herod had let them get out of control, and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, that the great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot out of my book. Now go, Lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. I'm going to start off with a, a, a stupidly obvious statement. Um, but an important one, I think, um, and that's that Exodus chapter 32 follows Exodus chapter 31. Now, I can see the looks of amazement on your faces, um, but, but that is important, I think, because in Exodus 31, um, there are two things that we're being introduced to. Uh, the first part deals with the 
uh, construction of the tabernacle and so on, and we learn that there are spirit-filled people, skilled people who are involved in this. Uh, and then the second part deals with the significance of the Sabbath day. Uh, and both of them, I, I think, are there in relation to the chapter 32, which is the worship of the golden calf, um, just simply to remind us of that. Um, Walter Kaiser, who knows a thing or two about the Old Testament, says this, their appearance at this point in the text deliberately contrasts the authorized worship of God set forth in the tabernacle instructions, etc., with the fabricated human worship of the golden calf. Uh, and I think he's absolutely right. That is what's happening here. It, it's a huge passage, um, Exodus 32, and if I can just apologize that that isn't the authorized PowerPoint background. I couldn't find it, so I've got another one. Just to let you know where we're going, the, the danger in delays, pagan worship, the wrath of God, and Aaron and Moses. So, the danger in delays. We're not good, are we, as human beings at coping with delay? I, I can not imagine that any of us have not been in one of those endless queues of traffic, maybe on a motorway or on a country road or something. You can't see the front of the queue. You can't see the back of the queue. And somewhere along the way, somebody decides that the best thing to do now is to lean on the horn as if that somehow is going to change the situation. And they blast the horn as if to say, come on, move. Well, nobody's moving for whatever reason because nobody can move. The thing is gridlocked. Um, it, it, it's all kind of locked in together. But we do have that tendency. We live in an age of instant gratification. We want things done. We want them done now. The, the kind of um, thing that's going on in our hearts is, Lord, uh, answer prayer and answer it now. The, the psalmist in Psalm 70 and verse 5 says that. He says, I'm poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. And Habakkuk is one of these impatient people. And, and in chapter 2 and verse 3, the Lord has to say to him, the vision awaits its appointed time. It will not delay. In other words, it may not come when you want it to come, but it will come. Uh, and it will come in the fullness of God's timing. Uh, and that becomes one of the, the themes, doesn't it, of the New Testament. Uh, the Lord Jesus introducing us to um, the idea of him returning, tells the story of the, the bridesmaids and the bridegroom. The bridegroom is delayed. They grow impatient. They, they grow idle. And instead of fulfilling his command in Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, they just become lethargic. And they find that when the bridegroom does come, and it says in the passage in Matthew 25, the bridegroom was delayed, and they didn't cope well with it. But the Lord has to remind us, has to remind the church through Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow. Sometimes we think he is. And that's where this whole story begins, doesn't it? Warren Wearsby says this, why did Israel commit such an evil act at such a glorious time in their history? We've been going through the most of Exodus, and it's just full, isn't it, of the most amazing things that you could imagine and 
I think it was the Sunday before last, Nathan just went through some of them again and reminded us, so I won't do that, but they're there, aren't they? Amazing acts of God's power, God's grace, God's mercy. And this is what Wearsby concludes. He says, to begin with, they were impatient with Moses, who'd been on the mount with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Just think how long 40 days and 40 nights is. Without your leader, without the, the focal point of, of, of all that's happening. They're there, days go by, weeks go by, they're still there, they're in the wilderness. What's going to happen to them? What are they going to do? They, they haven't got a God that they can see, uh, and Moses, who speaks to God on behalf of them, appears to vanish, and, and who knows what's happened to him. So they need an alternative. Wearsby makes an interesting little comment right at the end. It says, Israel did not know how to live by faith and trust God, regardless of where the leader was. Whether Moses was with them or away from them, they criticized him and ignored what he taught them. So it isn't just that he's not there. I think Wearsby is right, even when he was there. They were so quick to forget everything that God had done for them. So as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we wait for answers to our own personal prayers, we need to remember, don't we, that God works to God's timetable. God doesn't work to ours. We may think he's tardy, he's slow, he's not moving fast enough, but, but God will do nothing until the appropriate moment, and then he will do everything that he needs to do. So what about then pagan worship. There are a number of factors here that, or, or facets of pagan worship that emerge um, in, in this passage. Uh, the first one, A, if you like, pagan worship focuses on the external, not on the internal. In the story of the woman at the well, you remember that she's, she's obsessed with, with externals, which is the place that we should worship. We Samaritans say it's here in Samaria. You Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And the, the conclusion that Jesus comes to in John 4 is, no, the Father seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's neither this mountain nor that mountain eventually. It'll be an attitude of heart. And already in Exodus 20, we've heard them told in no uncertain terms, you shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above that's in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth and the reason for that is patently obvious isn't it uh, it's there for instance in isaiah 46 5 to whom god says will you liken me and make me equal well, whatever symbol they choose whatever form they want to make God into, it's going to be lacking, isn't it? Um, they've chosen here a golden calf, a bull, if you like, um, presumably because that uh, speaks of virility and it speaks of power and of strength, and they're certainly going to need that as they uh, go into the promised land where the, the Canaanites and all the others are and the Anakin, the, the giants are, are there. There are people like Goliath all over the place. They're going to need a strong God, how does a bull show you that God is compassionate 
or that God is holy, or that God is just, or that God is merciful, or any of the other characteristics of God. It doesn't, does it? There is one image of God that is permissible in Scripture. Colossians 1.15, He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Uh, and Jesus rocks them on their heels, doesn't he, in the upper room, when he simply says to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But the, the interesting thing is, John records those words, uh, and John has quite a, a lengthy gospel, as you know. Um, but nowhere in that gospel does he give us any indication of what Jesus looked like. Neither does Matthew, neither does Mark, neither does Luke. No more do any of the other apostles. Paul saw him, but he doesn't tell us what he looked like. You have to wait until you get to Revelation and a very graphic image of Jesus that's clearly full of symbolism. Why? Because while Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that's not saying that if Jesus is six foot tall, God the Father is six foot tall. If Jesus has blue eyes, then, then God the Father has blue eyes. No, what it's saying is, Whatever Jesus does, the Father does. Whatever Jesus loves, the Father loves. Whatever Jesus hates, the Father hates. It, it, it's a spiritual likeness. It's not a physical likeness. So pagan worship always wants to focus on the external. Uh, and you see it, don't you, in, um, can I describe them as less reformed branches of the professing Christian church? You go in and there are statues and there are idols and there are stained glass windows representing all kinds of things. And while to some people they're aesthetically pleasing, they're, the Puritans believed anyway, and I, I tend to stand with them, they, spiritually speaking, are dangerous because they are drawing us away from the invisible God to a visible God. They wanted a God they could see. And one of the reasons the early church uh, the early Christians were persecuted, was on the charge of atheism. Uh, when Polycarp was being tried, uh, he was told at one time, Polycarp, say, away with the atheists. Uh, and I, I can ju only just imagine him having a smile on his face because apparently he turned to the crowd in front of him, opened his arms and said, away with the atheists, pointing at the pagans rather than at the Christians. No. Because they could not see God, they could not believe in God. Whereas the, the scriptures teach us that it, it, it is believing that brings about seeing, not the other way around. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I'm trying to motor because it's a big passage. The second thing is paganism is a stranger to the truth. I'll just mention this, I'll come back to this later on. Um, there, there, there's a fascinating contrast here, isn't there, with this golden calf. Um, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 4 tells us this. He received the gold from their hand, this is Aaron, and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel. When Moses confronts him later on, and we, we'll return to this in, in just a moment, he comes up with this unbelievable kind of story. He said, do you know what happened? Uh, the, the people made me get all this gold and we threw it all in a cauldron and, and out popped this golden calf. 
Amazing, isn't it? But it doesn't deceive God for a moment. He says, this idol that you have made. So it's a stranger to the truth. Pagan, paganism always is. Um, John 8.32 tells us the truth will set us free. But, but Paul has a lot to say in that crucial chapter, Romans chapter 1, about truth. And we're told that men suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. Paul is saying there, it's not that people don't believe there's a God. It's not that people do not understand the difference between right and wrong. It's that they're sitting on a kind of volcano and they're pressing it down. They can't believe it because if they do, the whole of their lives will explode. I can remember being under kind of what I would now describe as conviction of sin. I had no idea what to call it at the time. But, but I at least knew this. If I was going to accept this gospel, if I was going to embrace this God, if I was going to ask this God for forgiveness, then everything in my life was going to change. Nothing would ever be the same again. And I wasn't sure that I wanted that initially. And I tried for a short while anyway to suppress that truth. But you can't. Later on in Romans 1, Paul says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we see that at the moment, don't we, with um, the, the, the worship of creation, uh, the, the earth, Mother Earth, um, uh, being elevated to um, some position where uh, it, it's almost a deity. It's exactly what happened back in Eden. The, the serpent sidles up to the woman uh, and he begins to question the truth of God. First of all, he questions the truth of what God said. Did God actually say? Were those his exact words? Are, are you sure he didn't misunderstand him? Uh, and then he undermines or tries to undermine the, the purposes of God. You will surely not die. God's not telling you the truth. Listen to me, I'm telling you the truth. And I can tell you why God's lying to you, says the serpent, because he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him. And he doesn't want that, says the serpent. So he lies, blatantly lies. See, thirdly, pagan worship is sensual, not spiritual in nature. Uh, the NIV uh, in chapter 32 and verse 6, uh, I think it's a good translation there. Most, most translations um, say that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Um, rose up for revelry um, is, is what the NIV says. And it, it's a good translation because all of the Hebrew in the passage is indicating that what was happening was an orgy. That they were out of control um, once they had rejected the true and living God, they, they developed all of the practices of, of paganism, uh, and what was going on was extremely unedifying. Uh, and the scripture is clear, isn't it, that there are two ways. There's the way of holiness, uh, and there's the way of the world. Mark 7.21. Sorry, I jumped my finger on that. Let's get back to Mark 7, if I can ever find it again. That's the trouble with... 
Mark 7, 21. For from within the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The law of God restrains, the Spirit of God restrains those things that, that uh, Paul collects together and calls them the works of the flesh. And he says, and they're evident in the world around us. Uh, and, and, and they are, aren't they? They're evident in, in, in what, what is happening in our world today. They're evident in the way in which the world is going. Peter talks about people living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's nothing new, is it? In the book of Esther, the Queen Vashti loses her throne because the king, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, has uh, become drunk and he wants to parade her for his nobles and she refuses. The drinks were served in golden vessels and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says this, and he's talking to the Corinthian church. You can imagine him, or it's being read out to the Corinthian church. Uh, and he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? But, but he wants them to know what he's talking about. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And from what we know about the Corinthian church, there would be people there saying, that's me. That's what I used to be. I used to be a reviler. I used to be a swindler. I used to be a drunkard. Um, I used to be sexually immoral in, in ways that I don't even want to think about any longer. And then comes the glorious end to the passage. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. That's what you were, says Paul, but it's not what you are. What had happened at Sinai was that what they were was a people in a covenant relationship with a holy God. What they'd become was what the Corinthians were before the grace of God was operative in their lives. They were focused. Oh, we've got some subpoints there that I'd obviously forgotten. There we go. Just so as not to miss anything. The wrath of God. The wrath of God. Back in Exodus 3 and verse 10, God speaks of my people. In 32.7, he says to Moses, your people. Uh, any parents here recognize that when your children are being less than behaved, the husband says to the wife, look what your, I'll say daughters, because all mine were daughters, look what your daughter's done. Uh, and to get the reply, why is she my daughter now? Because we, we kind of go, ah, disavowing myself. Um, not seriously, but, but that's what we do. 
We need to understand that Scripture teaches us that God is a God of wrath, and he's angry with what's going on. He's angry that all of his grace to them, all of the power that he's exerted on their behalf has been thrown away. It's been thrown into, into the dustbin in a matter of moments. Scripture teaches that God is a God of wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Numbers 11.10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. But we read in this passage that God relents. But one of our great things about God is that God does not change. So how can God, who does not change, relent? Well, he does it because he has already laid the groundwork for the things that will cause him to change his actions. Not his heart, not his mind. God will always be opposed to sin. God will always be compassionate and merciful. But what he intends to do can change. And there are a number of things that bring about that change. One, and I'm going to come back to this uh, in a moment, God said, intercession in Amos. I said, oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. Amos gains his place as one of the great intercessors in Scripture. But when we come to to Moses, um, we'll see a little bit more of that. That intercession is designed to bring about repentance. Jeremiah 18.8, God says, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to them. He calls on his people to intercede, and he calls on the, the sinful people to repent. And the promise is, if you do, I will change what I intended to do. We've got the most famous story of all, haven't we, in the Bible? Um, The reluctant prophet Jonah. Now, Jonah does not have the same love for the Ninevites that God does, does he? Uh, And when God says to him, go to Nineveh um, and tell them, yet 40 days uh, and I will destroy you, Ah, in the back of his mind, Jonah thinks, oh, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go there, I'm going to preach death and destruction, and then instead of me being able to sit on a hill and gleefully watch it happen, what if they repent? What if they believe? And so he heads off in the opposite direction, and you'll know the story, how God gets him there in the end. Uh, and he goes, and his, his message is minimal, isn't it? He goes through the city and he says, you're all going to die. You're all going to die. And nowhere along the way he says, but God is a God of mercy. God is a God of grace. If you repent, if you believe. No, it's just 40 days time and you're all finished. And of course, that threat brings one of the greatest kind of repentances that are recorded in Scripture, starting with the king right the way down to the the least of the people. Uh, And there we find Jonah sitting under his gourd, sulking, because he said, I knew this was going to happen. This is why I didn't want to come in the first place. But God ordains that repentance brings 
forgiveness. And it's on two grounds. Two grounds. One is compassion. Our God is a compassionate God, more compassionate than we can possibly imagine. Verse 26, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. But also, and we'll pick this up again when we look at Moses, his covenant promises. Psalm 106, 45 for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Interestingly, Nehemiah refers back to Exodus 32 in chapter 9. And he says this, he's talking about the people of Moses' day, of the period we're looking at. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that he performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies in your great mercies, did you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to lighten them by the way by which they should go. What an amazing truth to grab hold of. It, it, can people be more wicked than Israel was at this moment? Can they be less mindful of all that God has done for them. They, they, they commit, as, as Nehemiah says, they commit blasphemies. Uh, and yet God is still the God of compassion, the God of mercy, the God who wants to forgive. That should drive us to our knees as intercessors, shouldn't it? What a God we have. What a God we can come and pray to for our, our family and our, our friends and our neighbors and, and our nation and our world that, that seems to be so, so far from God and, and under the wrath and the judgment of God. But God says, I'm a God of mercy. I'm a God of grace. Two character studies to end. Aaron and Moses. Aaron, well, he's a true son of Adam, isn't he? We've already seen it. Um, he follows Adam and Eve exactly. Um, Exodus 32, 22 to 23. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. He's talking to Moses. You know the people that they're set on evil. Not me. I wasn't set on evil. They were. They said to me, make us gods to go before us. And they didn't know where you were. Not me. Just as Adam, immediately after sin, said, the woman you gave me, she gave me, and I ate. Secondly, as we've already seen, he's a consummate liar. I mean, that is the most feeble story you've ever heard, isn't it? I, I chucked it in the pot and I've jumped the calf. But I mean, that's really trying it on, isn't it? Um, but that, that's what he says, and, and no. No, God says, no, you made it. You made it. 
He's a failed leader. Verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, brackets, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Aaron was in charge. Aaron was the leader of the people in the absence of Moses, and he was not a leader, he was a follower. You've got to be one or the other, haven't you? You've either got to lead or you've got to follow. I have a feeling we recently lost a prime minister because in the end she gained a reputation of being a follower. Whoever shouted loudest, she changed her mind and went. And, and a failed leader. But here's a little ray of sunshine. He's a repentant sinner. When Moses comes down full of anger and he says, right, strap your swords to your sides. Um, and they go throughout Israel slaying the, the people that had been the, the leaders of this blasphemous coup, in a sense, against God. And among them is Aaron. He's obviously found mercy. He's obviously found grace because beyond this golden calf incident, he is still the high priest of God. He's found a place of forgiveness in his brokenness. His excuse is over. You have to read that into the passage, but he has obeyed the voice of the Lord. There's hope, isn't there, even for people that have made such a terrible hash of their lives. There's hope. So Moses. I think, oops. Yeah, there's Aaron, a true son of Adam, a consummate liar, and a failed leader. And a repentant sinner. Here's Moses. I'll try and put him up as we, as we come to them. An exemplary intercessor. Oh, does he know how to intercede? God says to him, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. Verse 10. Now, Moses is not going to let God alone. Uh, in chapter 18, we read, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose there are ten found there, not Moses on that occasion, but Aaron. Uh, and he's pleading and he's saying, You know, I know I'm pushing it, Lord, but I'm just going to come back with one more request. And Moses does not let God alone. He has answers for everything that God brings forward. And it, of course, it's God that's testing him. And he passes that test with flying colors. He refuses. No. He's a man of, of righteous indignation because he, he complains um, just as, as God does. He's angry with the people. Oh, I'm going to just get rid of those. Um, they're not in the same order as my notes. I don't know why, but they're not. Um, so, he doesn't let God alone. He refuses an unrepeatable honor. God tempts him, if I can use that word, but God tests him because God tempts no one to sin. But this wouldn't have been sin, but God tests him and says, I've got, a, I've got an offer for you, Moses. How would you like that the future generations no longer talk about me as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? What if they now call me the God of Moses? Let me wipe these people out, and we'll start again, fresh slate, with a new people, the people of Moses. Boy, that's tempting, isn't it? No, Moses says no. 
he reminds God of his own glory. Verse 12, he says, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them on the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. God says, Moses says, Lord, your glory is at stake here. Just think what people will say about you. It won't be true, but it's what they will say. And your name will be defamed in the world. He's appealing to God's sense of his own glory. And a lot of the great intercessors in Scripture do exactly the same thing. He reminds God of his covenant promises. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is effectively saying to God, God, you can't do that because you promised, you've promised Abraham that it will be his children. They can't then become mine. And then the most remarkable thing of all, Moses, in verse 30, says to the people, you've sinned a great sin, and now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. How does he offer to do that? Verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What, what Moses is saying is, look, can I offer myself as a substitute for the people? Let them live. Pour out your wrath and anger upon me. That's an amazing prayer isn't it it's only matched i think anywhere in scripture by um, paul in romans 9 where he says i'm speaking the truth in christ i'm not lying my conscience bears me witness in the holy spirit that i have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for i could wish that i myself were accursed and cut off from christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh paul and moses are willing to be a substitute but neither will do will they the the life of one man is the life of one man moses could maybe offer himself um, in in place of one of the israelites below he could he could offer to die in his place if you think of charles dickens the the tale of two cities where you know the better thing that i do now than i've ever done before one man lays down his life so that another man can go free only the god man christ jesus can lay down a life of such infinite value that all his people can go free moses is not sufficient but what a man to even put himself in that position he's a man of righteous indignation his anger burns hot uh, and when he comes down from the mountain he throws the tablets out of his hand it's interesting isn't it the the little detail in in exodus 32 um that the the tablets there was something unique about them um 
all children's storybooks wrong. They were written on both sides, not five under each arm like you see them, but written on both sides. They were unique. They were written by the very finger of God himself. There were a replica set made later on, carved by Moses. And as he comes down and he throws those tablets down and breaks them, he's effectively saying to the people, you have broken covenant with God. The covenant of Sinai was obey the law and live and you've broken the law and you'll die. He's a decisive, selfless leader. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. He knows that even though God may forgive this people and have a, a future for this people, there is a justice that needs to be wrought and, and he, just like God, is, is angry at the sin that he sees around him. The idolatrous calf was a symbol that they had fallen so very, very far from God. And if you hold out any hope that, well, that'll have certainly taught them a lesson, won't it? You know, all these people slain, having to have this calf ground down into dust uh, and then being forced to drink from it, that, that'll teach them a lesson. No, no. When the kingdom breaks into two, uh, and there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The, the northern kingdom is worried. People will still keep going down to Jerusalem to, to, to worship there. So what do they do? They build golden calves for the people to worship and say, these are your gods, Israel. These are your gods. Sinful humans don't tend to learn their lessons. But... If you're going to take anything away from tonight, that's not what I'd want you to take away. I'd want you to take away the center part. That we have a God more willing to forgive than we can possibly imagine. A God whose heart aches for his people. And a God who has laid out a way in which his wrath and his anger can be turned aside. And he calls upon his people to pray. And to pray in such a way that he will remember his covenant and he will relent when people repent. There is repentance to be found for the most hardened of sinners. Aaron found it. The people of Nineveh in Jonah's day found it. And we need to believe that our friends and our relatives and our family who don't know Christ yet, they can find it too. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. Oh, how precious it is to us. How we find that wherever we are in the, the Old Testament, we, we're, we're looking at Christ, the only one who could atone for sin. Moses couldn't do it. Paul couldn't do it. But Christ not only could, but would. Thank you that he came to keep the covenant that had been made with you, the covenant between God the Father and God the Son. He came saying, Behold, in the volume of the book it is written, I come to do your will, O God. He bowed to that will in Gethsemane. 
He bowed to that will on Calvary and you raised him from the dead as our victorious, atoning saviour. Thank you, Father. Amen.